I really thought that there was something so amazing about that. I mean, you got to remember too, I was selling solar panels that we kept in a warehouse, right? And we would, you know, we would sell down the warehouse and, you know, like in, in New York where we, where we had this business, uh, there was a very short installation window in the year when, you know, the, the temperatures were just right, when there wasn't snow on the roofs and you could install solar collectors, et cetera. Uh, not like in Australia where it's a huge industry and you can do it all year round. Uh, but it, at the time back then in, in New York, it was a very short season. And so, and this was a tremendous risk for me. I it was I was putting this this uh, the, this cost of goods sold on my on my credit cards. It was my wife and I who started the company, and we we co-founded it. And so I remember reading in the newspaper about this kid, Mark Zuckerberg, and Larry Page, and Sergey Brin, and these people who were like making millions of dollars at the time. Actually, they weren't making money, but but the the idea was that they would make millions of dollars, uh, and today billions of dollars, several billions of dollars, by just selling bits. And I just thought, oh my goodness, that's that's the business I want to be in. That's amazing. G'day, folks. Troy Dean here, and welcome to another episode of the WP Elevation podcast. My feature guest this week is an author and an angel investor based in New York City. His name is Nia Isle. He's the author of a book called Hooked, which is basically about how to use uh, psychology to create habit-forming products. You know, those products that you just can't stop using because of the notifications and because of the way that the product is designed. It just keeps you hooked in. Fast forward five years, he's about to release a book called Indistractable. That's right. He's kind of come full circle. Five years ago, he taught us how to create uh, addictive products. (laughs) Now he's teaching us how to avoid those addictive products in a new book called Indistractable, which comes out on September 10th, which I believe should be tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. So this is a fantastic episode. I could have sat here for days talking to Nia. Uh, So much to learn. And if you are in marketing or product development at all, or you want to improve your productivity, this is an excellent, excellent episode. So make sure you're taking your notes. Without further ado, let's go meet Nia Isle. This is the WP Elevation Podcast, helping WordPress consultants elevate. Just before we get into this episode of the podcast, I have a quick favor to ask. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes at wpelevation.com slash iTunes. Or if you're not an Apple user, you can get us on Stitcher Radio at wpelevation.com slash Stitcher. And please, if you are on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. It really does help us come up in the search results and get the show in front of a wider audience. And we love your feedback and we read all of the reviews. Thanks in advance. Now let's get back to the show. G'day folks, Troy Dean here from WP Elevation and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm super excited to have with me all the way from probably apart from Melbourne where I live, of course, my favorite place on the planet, Manhattan in New York City, near Ale. Hey, near, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Troy. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, you came to me via Ben Pines at Elementor. How did you come across Ben? I don't remember, actually. <laughs> We've known each other in the industry for a while now, and uh, I've been in tech since, uh, let's see, I started my first company. It was in 2006. Uh, that was in the solar energy business, and then I moved oh, wow. into online technologies. When I, you know, I remember seeing at one point that you could make money selling bits as opposed to selling physical things made out of atoms, and that was amazing. So I got into a different business in uh, 2006. Uh, 
seven when I got into uh, the, my last company, which was in the gaming and advertising space. So I've, I've been around for a while now. <laughs> so I guess we ran into each other along the path. Awesome. Uh, tell, me, tell me about the solar energy company. What were you doing there? Wasn't, wasn't uh, you know, not, has not, not much to do with what I do today other than that's where kind of I cut my teeth on entrepreneurship. I uh, started mm. essentially what, what today we call like a, a solar city. It was one of these uh, uh, companies that installs solar collectors, but this was very, very early. This was back in uh, 2006. It was, uh, you know, we were very early days. There was virtually no subsidies back then for, for solar energy. So that was my first company, and that company was was then acquired by a private equity firm. Uh, and then I came out to Stanford to go to business school. And uh, yeah, did uh, been doing high tech ever since. So hang on, after you built a business and it got acquired by a venture capital firm, then you go to business school in Stanford. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I honestly, like, I didn't even know what venture capital was. <laughs> right. Right. But, uh, but yeah, that was the, you know, we were going to run, keep continue running the solar energy business. And then I applied to Stanford. It's actually the only school I applied to for business school. It was that or just keep running the company. Yeah. Uh, but then my application came through and I, I thought it would be an opportunity what? I couldn't miss. This fascinates me. Why did you want to, Why did you want to go to Stanford and go to business school after you had essentially a successful acquisition under your belt? Why then go back to business school? Well, I, I really thought that there was something so amazing about that. I mean, you got to remember too. I was selling solar panels that we kept in a warehouse, right? And we would, you know, we would sell down the warehouse, and you know, like in, in New York where we where we had this business, uh, there was a very short installation window in the year when you know the, the temperatures were just right, when there wasn't snow on the roofs, and you could install solar collectors, etc. Uh, not like in Australia where it's a huge industry and you can do it all year round. Uh, but it, at the time back then in in New York, it was a very short season and. So, and this was a tremendous risk for me. I it was I was putting this this uh, the, this cost of goods sold on my on my credit cards. It was my wife mm. and I who started the company, and we, wow. we co-founded it. And so I remember reading in the newspaper about this kid, Mark Zuckerberg, and Larry Page, <laughs> and Sergey Brin, and these people who were like making millions of dollars at the time. Actually, they weren't making money, but but the the idea was that they would make millions of dollars, uh, and today billions of dollars, several mm. billions of dollars, by just selling bits. And I just thought, oh my goodness, that's that's the business I want to be in. That's amazing. Uh, got it. Got it. Um, and so fast forward, um, we're going to talk about the, the, the books. You're a published author. We're going to talk about Hooked and uh, Indistractable. But before we get there, what? how did you get to a point where you said, okay, what was the journey in the years leading up to Hooked? Where you said, okay, yeah. I, I, I've got this message. I have to write a book. Because writing a book is no – it's not something you do on a Sunday afternoon, right? Like it's a huge commitment – at, at, at what what led you to that point where you just had to get that message out of you and you felt so compelled to put pen to paper? Yeah, so the second company that I helped co-found was uh, this company that was in the intersection of gaming and advertising. And uh, this was when the Facebook platform was just really getting up and running and uh, starting to hit its stride. And um, I... I, I saw these companies kind of come and go. These companies that, remember back in the day when we used to throw sheep at each other through Facebook apps? <laughs> this was before the Apple App Store. So, you know, yeah. apps, what we call apps today on our phone didn't exist back then. Mm. Uh, the Apple App Store didn't come out until 2008. Uh, so back then, you know, apps meant Facebook apps. And, and I was just fascinated by how some of these companies got tremendously successful, seemingly overnight, mm. and others flopped. Others, you know, just went away. And after my last company was acquired, I had 
some time on my hands trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I had this hypothesis that as the interface shrinks, so as we went from desktop screens to laptop screens to mobile screens to now wearable devices like the Apple Watch to now auditory devices where the screen has completely disappeared when you think about uh, you know the Amazon Alexa, the Echo device. So when that happened, I, I had this hypothesis, this was uh, back in 2012, that habits would become more important, that because we just don't have the real estate to cue people to action, right? Mm. There just isn't as much room to tell them what to do next, mm. that if your customer, if your user didn't remember to use your product, then you might as well not exist, right? If you're on the second oh. or third page of someone's phone, if you're, you know, if you think about the Amazon Echo, the little, you know, Alexa device, yeah. If you can't remember what skill you want to access, then you don't exist because there is no screen interface anymore, which means that habits become even more important. So I said, okay, I want to build a habit-forming product. I was also watching the rise of companies like Facebook and Twitter and Slack and you know, Instagram. And uh, I, I, I saw them get so big so quick, and I, I want to say, okay, I'm going to build a habit-forming product. How do I do that? Where's the book that's hmm. titled How to Build Habit-Forming Products? And I couldn't find one. And so I started doing a lot of – I had, a, I had a, a, a really nice vantage point of having gone to Stanford for business school, and so I had access to these amazing researchers and the Stanford Library, and I was in Silicon Valley when these companies were being built, and many of these people were my friends who were working on these products. And so I just started writing about what I was learning. I wasn't – I didn't intend to write a book. I just you know, collected lessons and insights from what I was learning, thinking, hey, this is something I find useful, and I, I wrote as an exercise to kind of solidify my ideas. And then one day I got a, a call from my professor, former professor, who said, I really like your blog. I've just been reading it, and it's, it's really great. I, I had published my hook model, this four-step framework, and he said, let's teach a class together. So that turned into a teaching gig that I, I did for many years at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and then later at the Hazel Platter Institute of Design, uh, teaching how to build habit-forming products. That became the book. The course curriculum then became the book. So it wasn't that I said, I'm going to write hooked, it's that it kind of slowly evolved until I had enough uh, material and enough, enough content that I found useful and I thought maybe others would find useful as well. In fact, I self-published at first. Like I literally said, okay, mm. you know, I had a few hundred blog subscribers. I'll just put it out on, uh, on, on Amazon's Create Space. You know, you can mm -hmm. publish your own books. And it wasn't until the book started getting a lot of five-star reviews on Amazon that then I got a call from Portfolio and a few other publishers saying, hey, you know, we, we think this could be a, a real book because we see it's, you know, it's de-risked. The, the readers already like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've and done the work for them, yeah. Yeah, and the rest is history. Uh, so why a book? How, where does the book fit into the into the whole kind of business model? I mean, I, you know, I, I know quite a few people have written a book. I'm considering writing one myself. It's called The Modern Day Business Card. There's no money in actually writing a book, but it's the doors that the book opens and it's the back end that the book can help you create. Why a book? What, what's, your, what's your commercial business model that the book helps feed there? Well, I'll, I'll be totally transparent and totally honest with you. Uh, writing a book, very much like starting a startup, if you're doing it to get rich – you're just bad at math, yeah. right? <laughs> the odds are not in your favor. Uh, the chance of you being successful in a startup or the, being a, a really successful author making a lot of money, those are the wrong reasons to, to start a startup or to, to write a book. Uh, mm. I wrote a book. I don't know about other authors. I wrote a book because I wanted the answers. 
and hmm. putting the book into a framework that made sense to me so that I could evaluate my human capital, right? I was trying to decide what to do next with my professional career. Uh, now I use it, you know, now that I've had two exits, I actually use the same criteria as an angel investor. So I invested in Eventbrite, in Kahoot, hmm. a, a company that recently went public. Uh, Anchor FM was bought by Spotify. So I've invested over the years since building the hook model in products that I think are habit forming that build these healthy habits in users' lives. So that was why I wrote the book. I wanted a framework to answer my own question. And I think that to me is the best reason to write a book because if you make something – this is, by the way, the same advice I give entrepreneurs around why should I start a company. It's not to get rich. It's to build a product that you yourself need in the world. Mm. And that to me, if you do that, you can't fail because if you build something or if you write a book that you yourself want – there, there, there's no failure there. You, you wrote yeah. what you needed, right? You found the answers or you built a product that you yourself wanted. And whether you have commercial success or not doesn't matter. If you do get commercial success, well, terrific. That's, that's wonderful. But that's, that's the bonus. icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah. Um, so give me the give me the because I do want to talk a little bit about uh, indistractable, but give me the cliff notes. Give me the too long didn't read version of Hooked for those listeners sure. at home to entice them to go and buy it. Sure. So, in, uh, so with Hooked, my first book, uh, Hooked is really about how do these companies, uh, these best of breed companies, in, create the kind of products that people want to use, not because they have to, but because they want to. So when you mm-hmm. think about Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Slack, Snapchat, Salesforce, even, you know, how do we build these products that are so engaging that people keep coming back to? Uh, and so what I wanted to do was to understand the deeper psychology behind consumer engagement, behind consumer habits, because it's a huge competitive advantage. If you can create the kind of product that people come to first, if you can capture the monopoly of the mind, that is the kind of product that that captures the market and creates a huge defensive barrier to someone else, you know, coming in and taking your customers away. So uh, to do that, uh, we, we want to learn from the best of breed companies. And I think we can apply these same techniques, the same psychology to everything, right? Not just for, you know, silly video games or social networks. We can also apply the same exact psychology to help people exercise more, eat more healthfully, be more productive at work, etc. Uh, the same exact psychology is, is at work there. Hmm. And so Basically, it's these four basic steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment, and it's through successive cycles through these hooks. This is how customer preferences are shaped and how our tastes are formed. Can you talk about the reward part of this? Because my my next question was going to be, how important is dopamine in all of this? Well, dopamine is... Yeah, and I, and I disclaimer: I haven't read the book, so it might not be important at all. But my suspicion is is that <laughs> dopamine is an important part of the reward mechanism. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you a uh, a neuroscientist joke that is is not going to be funny, but I'll tell it to you anyway. <laughs> There's a neuroscientist joke that goes, "What's the role of dopamine in the brain?" And the punchline is to confuse neuroscientists. Uh, because <laughs> dopamine does a lot of things, yeah, uh, yeah. and it's. Typically, when you hear somebody talking about dopamine when it comes to product design, they're usually blowing smoke. (laughs) Because when it comes to really designing, you know, like actual nuts and bolts of pixels on a page, you don't need to be worrying about dopamine. What you do need to be worrying about is what I call variable rewards. I didn't make up that term, by the way, but variable rewards, intermittent reinforcement is another word for it. This idea that at the core of all of these habit-forming products is a bit of mystery, a bit of uncertainty. So what keeps us scrolling on Facebook or LinkedIn or Pinterest is the same exact mechanic that keeps us pulling on a slot machine. Mm. 
Yes. Variable rewards, intermittent reinforcement. And this isn't anything sinister per se. It's not, you know, brain hacking. We know what's going on. Mystery is what keeps us engaged in a great movie, keeps us reading an interesting book. It's what makes romance romantic, right? It's part of our DNA to be interested in things that we cannot exactly understand the pattern behind them. And so we find these these patterns all over the place. Uh, and, and so the idea behind a habit-forming product is to either insert variability in a product where, that needs it to become more engaging or some products and services utilize uh, agency, give the user greater agency and control over a situation that's already variable. So when you think about uh, you know, uh, uh, taking a, a, an Uber cab, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to get into an Uber cab and then the driver says, hey, guess what? Variable rewards. I'm going to take you the wrong way, right? A way you didn't expect. That's not fun because you're already, it's already a variable situation. Can I get to the airport on time? There's uncertainty there. And so in those circumstances, what you want to do is you want to make a product that gives the user greater agency and control over something that's already variable. But the core of the of the, the, the hook model, the, the fuel of the hook model is in fact this element of variability that we see in all sorts of products that bring people back. I remember when Foursquare first launched in Australia and there were about five of us using it and about three cafes registered. And I went into my local cafe and I, I you know, checked in on Foursquare because it was new and I was like, I'm gonna check this thing out. And yeah. I think I, after going to that cafe for three times and checking in, I became the mayor of that cafe because, like, there was no one else checking in, and so I was it, right? And I wasn't expecting that. I, in fact, at that point, I didn't even know that you could become a mayor of some place through Foursquare. That was just like a random reward that I got. And I was at that point, I was hooked. I used Foursquare for about, you know, three and a half months, and then I got bored and I moved on. But the point was, I, that was for me. I wanted to become the mayor of every place I went to, um, and you didn't know when you were going to become the mayor because you didn't know how many other people had checked in and. And so that was kind of this hidden competition built into yeah. it. And you actually demonstrate two really interesting principles. One is how engaged you were when you first got engaged with it, right? When you first used yeah. it, there was uncertainty there. What does that mean to be mayor? And what happens when someone takes the mayorship away from me, right? There's uncertainty there. Yeah. But then after a while, as most of us found with, with, uh, with Foursquare, it's an example of what's called finite variability. After yeah. a while, okay, I got the idea. So what was once variable became yeah predictable. And when it became predictable, it was no longer engaging yeah. as opposed to experiences that have finite variability, right? With every episode that you publish, there's something new, there's something different. You have to come back and watch the next episode because you're not going to, you're not sure what you're going to see. Mm. And so that type of continual uncertainty is what keeps people coming back. You know, it's really interesting that I'm just reflecting on my approach to this podcast these days, and I've spoken to Max about this, is I don't do a lot of research on my guests before we turn up and have a call. So at this point, before I turned up and had the call with you, I know that Ben had recommended you to the podcast. I did a little bit of stalking. I saw that you've written a couple of books. I kind of get the behavioral design concept. Um, I, I, I can imagine what you're passionate about. But that's basically it, because... I want to discover things about you at the same time as the audience are discovering it because that's what keeps me engaged, right? Yeah, if if yeah, I know a, a bunch point. of if I know a bunch of stuff about you before I do the interview, then I'm just going through the motions and I'm just kind of relaying what we already know to the audience. I actually want to be surprised, and that's what I think keeps 
me engage and also hopefully allows our conversations to go off on tangents that we otherwise wouldn't go off on because I'm discovering things at the same time. Now, the risk of that is that I miss something really important because I haven't done my research. Right. I'll, I'll let you pass for not reading yeah, my good, thanks. Okay. Excellent. I'll, I'll, give you a, good. I'll give you a pass this time. <laughs> now, so we should pivot to what is important, uh, which is your uh, is Indistractable. Is this your second book? This will be my second book, okay. right? Indistractable is a little. It's 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 a the same audience, the same group of readers, right? Tech savvy people who, uh, uh, you know, are 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 pro tech, like tech. Okay. Uh, I think it's a, a force for good in the world overall, mm. even though of mm. course it has some problems. Clearly, as we've seen over the past several years. Mm. But it's this answer to this question that I had ever since I, I wrote Hooked. Uh, remember, at the time when I wrote Hooked, and it was it was back when it was published in 2014. Nobody's problem was that people are, were overusing our products, right? Yeah. Our, our problem was that we had this great technology and nobody was using it. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, and yeah, still yeah. today, that's the big problem that most companies have out there is that they have this great technology that would improve people's lives if they only used it. So that's still the big problem. However, what we have seen, you know, when I got it started, when I first wrote Hooked, I had to convince people that uh, these kids in Silicon Valley didn't just get lucky. Right, that was actually what a lot of people believe. Well, these these guys just got lucky, right? You know, some dorm room kid, you know, figured it out uh, he got lucky. Turns out that that you know nobody's making that case anymore. We mm. know that these companies, that these people, they understand what makes us click and what makes us tick better than we understand ourselves. And so I don't need to make the case that consumer psychology is important to understand in order to design great products and services. Now what we find is that we have a different problem. Now the problem is that some technologies are so good, are so persuasive, uh, and so pervasive mm. that some of us, me included, me, me firmo, uh, uh, foremost, struggle to do what we say we're going to do. Because in a world with so many interesting things to explore, right, between uh, Stack Overflow and Quora and Reddit and YouTube, and I mean the list goes on and on and on. There's so mm. many interesting things to check out. That it's very hard to get us to check in, right? To do what it is we say we're going to do. So, indistractable. It's not a book just about technology, although technology does uh, play a prominent role in this in this discussion. The real question I try and answer is why don't we do what we say we're going to do, hmm. right? That I I really believe that becoming indistractable is the skill of this century. Because if you think the world is a distracting place today, if you struggle to do what you say you're going to do in work, in business, in life. If you're struggling today, just wait a few years, right? For your kids' sake, just wait. A few, watch what's going to happen when virtual reality becomes mainstream, when yeah. God knows what else is coming along the pipes that is going to become even more engaging and more potentially distracting than what we see today. And so I believe that we need to become indistractable in order to make sure that we can get the best of technology without letting it get the best of us. So I am very pro-tech, obviously. I think it's a force for good in the world. I think it improves standards of living. I think one of the highest callings for a professional career is to support the technology industry to improve people's lives. It's the only thing that has ever improved our standard of living as a, as a race, as a civilization. So we, we need to continue to invest in technology. However, as Paul Virilio said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. And so one of the shipwrecks of this technological revolution, of this incredible uh, opening of opportunity and knowledge and information sharing, is that you know we live in an age where there's so many good things that it's sometimes hard to put it away and do what it is you said you're going to do. So how do we deal with that, right? How do we do what we say we're going to do? You know, we 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 know what we should do. We know how to how to 
take care of our bodies, how to eat right, how to exercise. We know basically what to do. We don't need diet books to tell us. We know how to have good relationships, right? Be fully present with people that you're with. We know how to be successful at work. Do the damn work. Mm -hmm. Why don't we do it? And so the book is really this deeper explanation or exploration of the psychology of distraction and how to become indistractable. So, wow. Okay. There's so much to unpack here. Um, and and this is you know I, I'm cognizant of the fact that I don't want to trivialize and minimize your life's work into you know a, a very short uh, podcast conversation, but this is something that I think about a lot. My wife is a clinical psychologist. Uh, we talk about this kind of stuff a lot. She's not anti-tech, but she is very very uh, like for example you know we have missed birthday parties before because the invite went out over a facebook event and she just mm. didn't get the invite and so her friends now will send her a text message saying check facebook because you've been invited to someone's birthday party next weekend and you haven't responded um yeah. i i looked at my screen time last night and uh for the first time first time ever i've looked at the screen time app on my phone and Realize that I, I pick up my phone an average of 81 times a day. That's below average. It's, yeah, and it blew my mind. I could not <laughs> believe I picked this thing up 81 times a day. I yeah. spend a lot of time on Facebook. I do a lot of business on Facebook in groups and Facebook Messenger. Um, however, I have become, through talking to my wife and, and learning a lot about mindfulness, I've become, I know when I'm using my phone mindlessly. I know when I'm just picking up Facebook and scrolling for what I call the dopamine hit, which is, oh, somebody liked my post. Oh, somebody's commented on, oh, lovely, 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 right? I know when I'm doing that. And yeah. I don't do it very often. But when I do, I know I'm, I'm mindfully picking up my phone for a, for a cheap thrill, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what is like, and again, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to trivialize your, oh. your life's work into a short sentence here, but. What is I've got some theories in this myself, but what is the what is like the number one thing you can do to try and uh, restrict how technology and these great products that have been built to get our attention, how much impact they have on your productivity and you actually fulfilling your mission? What what is what's a practical thing we can do to start moving in that yeah. direction? So I'll I'll give you the highlights. I'll give you the four things that make up the indistractable model. So imagine for a second that you have a line, a horizontal line. And mm -hmm. on one side, on the right side, you have traction. Mm -hmm. Traction is defined as any behavior, any action that pulls you towards what you want in life. The word comes from the Latin trahare, which means to pull. So mm -hmm. traction is any action that moves you towards what you want in life. The opposite of traction is distraction. distraction. So distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you want in life, right? So what I wanted to steer clear from was this moralizing of uh, Candy Crush bad, but watching rugby on TV is okay. Why? I, I don't know. There's no moral difference between the two. A pastime's a pastime. In either case, if what you plan to do was check Facebook or play Candy Crush or watch YouTube, whatever it might be, if that's the time you plan to spend, great. There's nothing wrong with it. It's traction. But if, on the other hand, you use one of these services when you didn't plan to use them, right, that's distraction. Okay, so we've got traction, we've got distraction, and none of these technologies are inherently evil. This is silly, right? Every generation has a moral panic that these technologies are evil, and I think that's total hogwash. Mm. In fact, uh, as long as we recognize this difference between traction and distraction, now we can start to recognize what is the difference. So again, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. 
As long as you put it in your calendar and that's what you plan <laughs> to do, great. So we've got traction to one side. We've got distraction to the other. Now, what influences us, our actions towards traction or distraction? Only two things. We have internal triggers and we have external triggers. So internal, external triggers are these arrows that point to the center of this horizontal line that move us in either direction, traction or distraction. Hmm. External triggers are these pings, dings, rings, all of these things that prompt us to either traction or distraction. If it's something we want to do, if I get a notification on my phone that says, hey, Nier, time to work out, time to have this call, whatever it might be, and that's what I plan to do, great, it's traction. If it's something that sends me a notification and then I'm pulled off track, right? So part of the inspiration of the book is that I found myself on my phone as opposed to being with people I love, like my daughter. Mm. If I plan to be with my daughter and I get this notification from my phone, and now I'm using my phone instead of being fully present with someone I love, now it's a distraction. Okay, mm. so that's external triggers. The last part is the internal triggers, and this is really the linchpin. So the four steps to becoming indistractable is to master the internal triggers, and I'll tell you what they are in just a second, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. If you do these four things, you will become indistractable. Hmm. The most important part, and get to get to your question about, okay, like what's the one big takeaway if you can have one? Now, the biggest takeaway is, is this model of distraction. If you understand these four basic steps, you understand everything you need to know about distraction, procrastination, doing what it is you need to do. But my biggest revelation from all this is that I kind of thought what you thought, kind of what you said. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounded like you were saying that dopamine hit. Now I understand why you mentioned that earlier of this feel-good sensation. Hmm. Turns out that's not why we get distracted. Turns out that this idea, it's called Freud's pleasure principle. The pleasure principle that Sigmund Freud propagated was this idea that everything we do is to gain pleasure and avoid pain. Hmm. Not true. Everything we do, all human behavior, is motivated by one thing. It's pain all the way down. Wow. All human behavior is motivated by a desire to escape discomfort. Wow. It's called the homeostatic response. When we have physical discomfort, when we're cold, we put on a jacket. When we're hot, we take it off. If we're hungry, right, hunger pangs hurt, we eat. If we're full, oh, we're stuffed, that feels bad, we stop eating. So those are physiological sensations, the homeostatic response. Mm. The same thing applies to psychological sensations. So when we feel lonely, we check Facebook. When we're mm. uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check Reddit, we check YouTube, we check stock prices, what sports scores, whatever it might be, to satisfy that internal trigger, that uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. So the icky, sticky truth that we don't like to think about that we don't like to deal with, and it turns out to be the hardest part about becoming indistractable, is to try and understand what is the emotional discomfort that we are looking to escape. And if we can master those internal triggers, if we can either fix the source of the discomfort or learn healthier ways to cope with that discomfort, mm. these companies got nothing on us. Mm. There's nothing they can do. If we don't do something about it, they will definitely get you. So the fact is these companies aren't addicting us. They're not hijacking our brains. That's a bunch of rubbish. But if you leave yourself vulnerable, if your kids are vulnerable, if your coworkers are vulnerable and you do not know these tactics to become indistractable, I promise you, you are more vulnerable than ever and they will probably get you to do things that you later regret. 
Uh, two things I want to talk about here. Uh, this is fascinating, by the way, and I could literally sit here for days and talk about this. Um, or you could just read the book. Or I could just read the book. <laughs> well, it'd be more interesting, I think, to talk to you because, you know, you're like the three-dimensional animated version of the book. Um, uh, I, we were in Santa Monica recently and I was talking to some, uh, some of our mastermind customers and uh, one of our members, Pete, you know, we're talking about why it's important to grow the business so that it's operating without them. Now, there's a bunch of reasons why it's important, but I wanted to get to really what's going on, like what's really motivating me. He said, you know, I'd have to just spend a year learning how to play bass guitar. And we kind of explored that a bit more. And um, another friend of mine back here in Australia said something recently when I he was in our recording studio just just mucking around with software. And I said, oh, you got a client project coming in, you got a new thing you're working on? He's like, no. Nah. And I said, all oh, right, cool. So what are you doing? And he said, I'm exploring joy. And it, it took, it winded me. I couldn't breathe when he said <laughs> it. Like it literally felt like someone had hit me in the solar plexus, right? Yeah, um, it's beautiful. It, it, it was absolutely beautiful. I was so surprised that he was just doing something for the sheer joy of it. And it really confronted me and challenged me to think about why I feel like I've got to have my foot on the pedal the whole time and be super productive and working so hard and what what is my value and what is my worth if I'm not contributing and not being productive and not working? Can I just take some time off? In fact, the truth is this week and next week, I'm supposed to be taking time off from work and sitting in the studio playing guitar for the sheer joy of it. Nice, and here I am nice. hosting a podcast. So <laughs> I'm finding it really difficult to step away and just experience joy for the sheer joy of it. And, but when you said that it's pain all the way down the line, I still... I still can see that doing something, just doing a jigsaw puzzle or doing a Sudoku or doing a crossword and, and kind of unwinding just for the sheer joy of it is still a form of seeking comfort. Right. It's an escape from an uncomfortable feeling. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Again, mm. there's nothing wrong with, you know, watching a movie is a perfect example of this. You know, mm. we, we, we think of the modern technologies as being the, the most distracting. You know, watching a sports match on TV or re getting into a good book or watching a good movie is also a form of psychological escape, right? You are in that book. You are watching that movie. You're on that soccer pitch. And that feels good. It's nice to escape once in a while. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's when we use that psychological escape because we can't deal with other things and mm. therefore that harms us, mm. that's when it becomes a problem, right? When mm. I was uh, on my phone, when I really truly planned to be with my daughter, yeah, that's a problem, yeah, right? I'm sending a message to my daughter that my phone was more important than time with her. That's unacceptable yeah. and I knew I had to do something about it. When I would sit down at my desk and, and write, right? I'm a writer, I'm supposed to write. And I couldn't write because I kept Googling stuff and researching something and checking email and Slack channels, thinking in the name of productivity, just because something feels like it's being product I'm being productive doesn't mean it's not a distraction. It actually was a distraction because it wasn't what I intended to do. Mm. So my next question is, um, is there a I, – I, I believe there's a, a – you know, one of life's great lessons is to – learn how to be comfortable in the uncomfortability of that loneliness or that sadness or that grief or that whatever it is that not that uncertainty being comfortable in the uncertainty um what i just wonder if you could speak to that for a moment yeah so that that, that hints a, a, around the two main tactics for what do you do with these internal triggers if the first step out of these four is master internal triggers how do you master internal triggers well there's only two ways you can do this you can either fix the source of the discomfort 
or you can learn to cope with the discomfort in a healthier manner. Now, I'm not talking about meditation and mindfulness. The only time I mention meditation and mindfulness in the entire book is when I say I will not be talking or recommending mindfulness and meditation. <laughs> not that it doesn't work. It's just been written about ad nauseum. So yeah. I wanted to offer new techniques for folks who maybe have tried it and didn't find those work particularly well for them. Mm. I wanted to offer more than that. So the idea is to ask ourselves first and foremost, where is that discomfort coming from? And can we fix it, right? Part of the problem that I had, I meditated for a year. And the fact is that there's a lot of problems that we could fix if we just stop meditating and go fix the fucking problem. <laughs> Sorry to curse there. But I wanted the, the more active uh, participation in fixing the circumstance. Why am I in pain? What's causing me this discomfort? And what I found was that to my amazement, where these internal triggers were coming from for most people where, I mean, if you think about it, right, we live in the most peaceful, most well-educated, most democratic time in human history, right? For not, I'm not naive here. I know lots of people live in very difficult circumstances, but I'm guessing for yeah. your viewers, for your listeners, most of us, we're living the kind of lives that even kings couldn't imagine a few hundred years ago. Mm. So what are we so anxious about? Well, not only are these uh, aspects of the human condition dictate that we are not – ever supposed to be satisfied. It's a myth. We've convinced ourselves that somehow we're supposed to be happy, and if we're not happy, it's not normal. No, and nothing could be further from the truth. We are designed for dissatisfaction. Furthermore, turns out that the workplace is this source for many of us, not, not for all of us, of course. There are some workplaces that are not the case, but many people work in, in environments where the work culture is so dysfunctional that it literally creates distraction. How does it do that? Turns out there are two work conditions that I discovered here in my research. I didn't do the original research, but I found these, these two researchers that, that did do this research that found some of the most exhaustive studies around two conditions of a work environment that are most highly correlated with anxiety and depression disorder. Hmm. Those two conditions are work environments with high expectations and low control which for many of us is our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. And it turns out if you work in that kind of circumstance, you are literally creating a, a, an environment that creates depression and anxiety disorder, high expectation, low control. And so what do people do when they feel low control, when they feel like they can't affect change, when they're stuck where they are and there's nothing they can do about it? They grasp for a sense of agency. They look for something they can control. And guess what they can control? Yeah. I can send a Slack message. I can call a meeting. I can send that email because that makes me feel like I'm doing something, like I'm in control. And so those are those internal triggers that, that cause us to literally become more distracted. And so that's why I say distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. And in fact, the companies that have beat distraction at work are the ones, many of them are the most tech, tech advanced. For example, I profile in the book, one of the case studies in the book is Slack. Mm. Slack is one of these you know, group chat apps that many people blame on making them you know, chain to the workplace. They're constantly checking their Slack channels. But at Slack, they don't have this problem <laughs> because at Slack company headquarters, it says on the wall in big pink neon letters, work hard and go home. <laughs> the company has this culture of turning off. Now, that doesn't mean we have to all copy Slack because it's more than that. It's more than skin deep. Slack also has this workplace culture where people have what's called psychological safety, 
where they feel that they can raise their hand and say, hey, boss, I don't, I don't know if this is working out. I have this concern. And they can raise those concerns without getting fired. And that what, – what does that do when you have psychological safety? It increases your sense of agency. It gives you more control over a circumstance where you feel you have low control. So those are the most productive, healthiest work environments. You still have high expectations, but you also have high control. So just giving people psychological safety turns out can actually fix the source of these internal tri triggers that drive us to distraction. Fascinating. Uh, the book is called Indistractable. When is the book out? When, it is, when is it available, Nia? Yeah, so Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life is coming out in the United States on September 10th, 2019. And it'll be available in the Commonwealth, in, in English at least, uh, on, in October. Awesome. And uh, it'll also be published in several languages, Estonian, Korean. I'm looking at the list here, German, Vietnamese, Taiwanese, uh, lots of languages. It's, it's coming out in as well with it in uh, 2020 as well. Wow. And so your, your marketing campaign for this book is, is like months in advance. You're on, I mean, you're on the roadshow now. You're getting the word out there now and getting people revved up for the book launch, right? That's kind of the process for two reasons. One, um, you know, you, you, you need to start early with this kind of stuff to, to get out there. Um, uh, by the way, I should mention, if you are listening to this or watching this before September 10th and you live in North America, mm -hmm. you can actually get the entire book as a downloaded PDF. If you buy it somewhere else, you can buy it anywhere you like. As long as you send me the order number, you can go to indistractable.com, enter in the order number no matter where you buy it, and I will send you a PDF of the book so you can read it before anyone else reads it. Wow. Uh, but then the second reason why I'm doing this, I just love this. I mean, you can hear this in my voice. I just, yeah. I just think this is such a cool topic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. I just love talking about it. I'm just so excited about what I did. I mean, it took me five years to write this book wow. uh, because I kept getting distracted before I figured out how to become indistractable, and I yeah. kept using all these techniques that didn't work. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like I did all the the crap that these books tell you to do, like go on a digital detox and have a 30 day fast, and it doesn't work. And it doesn't work for the same reason that fad diets don't work. Because you know, I, when I was so I used to be clinically obese at one point in my life, and I and I I, oh, wow. I went on these fat diets, right? I said, okay, I'm not going to eat fast food for 30 days. Well, guess what happened on day 31? Yeah, blah, 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 right? <laughs> like I made up for lost time because I hadn't dealt with why I was overeating, and that's the same when it comes to distraction. It's not about excising it from your life. It's not about some silly digital detox. That's stupid. It's about learning how to get the best of technology without letting it get the best of us. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Uh, Hooked is the first book. Indistractable is the second book. Near and Far is the blog, and it's spelled N-I-R and Far. N-I-R-A-N-D-F-A-R.com is the blog. Uh, Near Isle, it's been absolutely fascinating having you on the show. Thank you so much for your patience and your understanding. When we bumped you a few weeks ago, I'm really glad that we got to do this. It's been super fun, and uh, look forward to the book coming out. I'm definitely going to get a copy for myself and my wife, and in the meantime, I'm going to devour Hooked. So by the time uh, Indistractable is launched, I'm ready for it. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks, Nia. Take care. All right, there you go, gents, ladies and gents. There's another episode of the WP Elevation podcast. Nearandfar.com, N-I-R-A-N-D-F-A-R.com is where you can check out more of Nia Isle's work. The first book is Hooked, and the second book coming out in September is Indistractable. Uh, please hit us up on iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps us come up in the search results, and we read all your reviews and take the feedback on board and connect with us on Facebook and YouTube. That's where we spend most of our time on social. Look forward to speaking with you again next week on the podcast. Until then, I'm Troy Dean. Go Elevate. Right.